Hi, this is Rachel Hine and Heather Levitis, Duke Plastic Surgery Residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for a yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Stay tuned after this podcast for a brief message from our sponsors. Today, we'll be continuing our quick hit series lecture on parotid tumors and head and neck tumors another favorite topic of the in-service and not my personal favorite. So make sure to visit www.theresidentreview.com to follow us along on our outline. All right, Heather, do you want to get us started on a little bit of anatomy and benign neoplasms? So just basic anatomy, um, the parotid gland is a salivary gland. It's innervated by the parasympathetic auricular temporal nerve, cranial nerve five, and the glossopharyngeal nerve, but cranial nerve seven importantly passes through. Submandibular glands produce the most saliva, um, followed by the parotid and the sublingual gland at rest. The submandibular gland, I believe, can produce about 1.5 liters of saliva per day. Head and neck neoplasms. In terms of benign pathology of the head and neck, a pharyngeal fistula typically presents as lateral neck draining sinus over the sternocleidomastoid muscle and tracks deep to the stylohyloid and digastric muscles and is superficial to the internal carotid artery and stylopharyngeus. A myxoma presents as a slow-growing benign tumor and we treat with wide local excision. Patients with bruxism um, present with hypertrophy of the masseters. The treatment is actually with Botox injections typically, but you can also give muscle relaxants to help with the symptoms or even resection of the masseter muscle. Nasopharyngeal angiofibromas typically present with epistaxis. They're benign, but are locally invasive. And the treatment is with resection and radiation if there is intracranial extension. And then patients who have fibrous dysplasia, which is abnormality of the, the bones, obviously, they generally appear as ground glass type tumors on imaging. And you treat these by shaving and recontouring the bone rather than complete excision. So we'll move on to tumors of the mandible and teeth. You can have aneurysmal bone cysts, which are characterized by multinucleated giant cells. And treatment for these are resection and curatage. We get questions about osteoradionecrosis. Generally, we're, we're providing the reconstruction for these patients, but this is you know, an important topic that we need to know about. It generally occurs after the patients have received 6,500 gray of radiation, and there's an increased risk in patients who have dental caries or periodontal disease. Patients can develop osteoradionecrosis after bisphosphonate use, specifically alendronate as an example. And then it can develop in kind of non-vital bone. Stage one is characterized by exposed alveolar bone without pathologic fractures. It responds to local debridement and then just oral care and hyperbaric oxygen. Stage two, osteoradionecrosis, you need major bony debridement. Generally, these patients are not responsive to HBO. And then in stage three, they've had you know, failed treatment in stages one and two, characterized by pathologic fractures or cutaneous fistulas, evidence of lytic involvement in the mandibular border. And the treatment is with segmental mandibular resection and reconstruction. And then generally we use three fib. Gingival cysts are keratin-containing cysts found on alveolar ridges. 
Dentigerous cysts or follicular cysts develop around an unerupted tooth when it degenerates and becomes kind of this unilocular cyst um, characterized by non-keratinizing stratified squamous epithelium. It's most common around the mandibular third molar or the wisdom tooth. You'll see the tooth at the bottom of the cyst surrounded by kind of this like unerupted tooth cyst mass. And then you also have your radicular, also known as periapical cysts. These are inflammatory cysts, which develop from the periodontal ligament at the apex of a non-viable erupted tooth. So generally after an infection. So when patients have kind of dead teeth, you'll see these radicular cysts. It's a fibrous shell with inflammation and also non-keratinizing epithelium. And then Another type of cyst in the teeth or in the mouth that you'll see are primordial cysts, also known as odontogenic keratosis. These are keratinizing squamous line cysts that develop from basal cell hamartomas, and the treatment is with enucleation and chemoablation. These are associated with Gorlin syndrome, which is a syndrome also characterized by calcifying odontogenic cysts, along with basal cell carcinomas at young ages. Um, but the biopsy of these shows epithelium undergoing keratinization with reet ridges and ameloblastic proliferations with some calcifications. Ameloblastoma, it presents as a mass or swelling on tooth-bearing segments of the mandible. It looks like big soap bubble on imaging with radiolucent multicystic can also be unilocular lesions. It's benign but locally invasive. You want to treat with this is complete segmental resection with reconstruction. The pathology shows odontogenic epithelial islands with palisading cells of odontogenic epithelium, and they typically present in the fourth and fifth decade of life. All right. And then finally, neurofibromas are generally bilateral expansile lesions along the inferior alveolar nerve and is characteristic of inpatients with neurofibromatosis. And these are mast cells in myxoid stroma. Also in patients with NF, you see the absence of the sphenoid greater wing, and you can also see macrocephaly. All right. Thanks, Heather. I will go over some malignant tumors. So the first one is nasopharyngeal carcinoma. Remember, this is associated with EBV and Burkitt's lymphoma. It's usually treated with chemoradiation instead of resection. There's also osteosarcoma, which can occur in the head and neck. This is an aggressive expanding mass in the maxilla or mandible. It needs radical excision with adjuvant chemoradiation. Risk factors for this include fibrous dysplasia and retinoblastoma or previous radiation. And remember that this is, appears to be a lamellar ossification and cortical destruction with poorly defined borders on panorex or x-ray. The yeah, next no. is the parotid tumor. So 80% of the parotid tumors originate within the parotid gland. This is the most common location for salivary gland malignancy. So you'll have pain, paresthesia, and face, facial paralysis. These are all signs of neural invasion and neural invasion is usually associated with malignancy. Also associated with malignancy is rapid growth, bony fixation, skin ulceration, and palpable nodal enlargement. Remember, like Heather was talking about the facial nerve divides, the superficial and deep portion. So superficial prodotectomy involves removal of the parotid gland superficial to the plane of the facial nerve. It is indicated for benign parotid tumors. So pleomorphic adenoma, mucociles, brinchial cleft cysts, lymph nodes, and a total prodotectomy is removal of both the superficial and deep parotid gland. A radical prodotectomy is indicated for a malignant lesion of the facial nerve. So it's a total prodotectomy with facial nerve sacrifice. If the tumor invades the parotid capsule, you do need a superficial prodotectomy. 
We'll go over some benign lesions of the parotid. We lumped them in here because it makes sense to talk about parotid tumors together. But a pleomorphic adenoma is a benign parotid tumor and is the most common tumor of the parotid gland. We are tested on histology and biopsy will show stellate and spindle cells with a myxoid background. So stellate and spindle with myxoid background. A superficial parotidectomy is treatment to avoid local recurrence. And you do preserve the facial nerve in these cases. Worthen's tumor is usually benign and is the second most common parotid tumor. It occurs in men 50 to 70 years of age. And we have the rule of tens. So it tens. So 10% of the time it's bilateral, uh, 10% of the time it is malignant and yeah, yeah, that's it. Anyway, <laughs> um, it usually occurs in men who smoke and biopsy will show papillary cysts filled with mucoid fluid and lymphoid nodules. And the treatment is a superficial prodotectomy versus monitoring, but it'll probably be, um, operative in our test questions. Adenoid cystic carcinoma is a malignancy that is the second most common malignancy of the salivary glands after a mucoepidermoid carcinoma and can present in any of the salivary glands. It has a propensity for neural invasion and it can present with facial paralysis, pain, metastasis to the lung biopsy will show cribiform or Swiss cheese cells. So that's a buzzword cribiform or Swiss cheese cells with perineural invasion. And you want to treat this with radical surgical excision as it has a high rate of recurrence and metastases before you operate. Remember to get an MRI or CT scan to first determine the neural invasion and plan for surgery. And you want one to two centimeter margins followed by radiation therapy. If there are palpable nodes. The most common salivary gland malignancy is a mucoepidermoid carcinoma. So biopsy will show mucus producing and poorly differentiated epithelial cells. It is locally invasive. If it's high grade mucoepidermoid tumor, you'll do a total prodotectomy and ipsilateral neck dissection and post-op radiation. If the nodes are clinically positive, you may perform a superficial prodotectomy if it's a low grade tumor, but most of these present as high grade. The next thing we'll talk about is microcystic adnexal carcinomas. These are flesh colored nodules of the upper lip, nose, periorbital region in middle age patients. They can have perineural invasion and you want to treat this with a Mohs resection. Next we're tested on often as Merkel cell tumors. These are very aggressive and frequently present in the head and neck of elderly women. It is a deep, dark purple, dense oval mass, and it has indistinct borders that invade the deep dermis, sub-Q fat and muscle. The treatment is wide local excision of at least three centimeters an ipsilateral neck dissection, and you can include the parotid as well if it's in the preauricular areas. The next thing that we'll talk about is the submandibular gland. So in any malignancy involving a submandibular gland, it can involve Wharton's duct, which is the duct of the submandibular gland. It can be blocked if cancer invades this area, resulting in backup of salivary content, gland enlargement, and this can become firm and painful and even infected. The most common cause of a hard mass in the floor of the mouth is of salivary origin, so submandibular gland. Minor salivary gland malignancies are less common, but more likely to be malignant. The palate is the most common source of minor salivary gland tumors. And most remember our adenoid cystic carcinomas of the minor salivary glands. This requires surgical resection with adequate margins, radiation of high grade metastases. If you don't have a complete resection, et cetera, paresthesias remember are consistent with perineural invasion and remember to stage with CT MRI prior to any operative intervention. I'll talk about a couple of complications and then I'll leave Heather with the thrill of neck dissection and staging. <laughs> so <laughs> complications include facial nerve paralysis, gustatory sweating, and sialocele. A chylus fistula, which sometimes can happen in a neck dissection, 
um, is treated with a medium chain triglyceride diet, closed suction drainage of the neck and exploration ligation may be considered in refractory cases. And remember a pec flap can seal the fistula and diagnosis. You can see like milky fluid in the drain with these patients. Parotid complications. Frey's syndrome is gustatory sweating. And this occurs from aberrant reinnervation of the auricular temporal nerve following superficial parotidectomy. So it's postganglionic parasympathetic reinnervation to postganglionic sympathetic of the dermal plexus. And to treat this, you can place the SMAS between the parotid bed and overlying skin. You can treat with skin excision or tympanic neurectomy, anticholinergics like anti-salagogues to abate the symptoms. And you can identify this with an iodine or tissue test. You can also Botox the parotid gland, which we've been tested on. And then Borgerad syndrome, which is also known as crocodile tears. It's less common phenomenon than, than gustatory sweating, but it is hyperlacrimation after injury to the facial nerve. So it's another form of aberrant regeneration after lacrimal gland resection. And you can treat this with Botox or dilating of the lacrimal tract laceration of the parotid duct. So this is at risk from a penetrating injury from the line of the tragus to the mid upper lip. If identified early, you want to try to re-explore an anastomose Stenson's duct. If identified later, you want to manage with drainage pressure and anti-sialagogues. Remember the last resort for recurrent sialadenitis is superficial parotidectomy, and that's for recalcitrant salivary collections. And in these cases, salivary fistula is a risk for recalcitrant sialadenitis. All right. I think I've said enough. <laughs> Moving on to some of the kind of more basic staging principles that we're expected to understand in terms of squamous cell carcinoma in particular, if we're looking at the TNM staging system, stage T1 tumors are generally less than two centimeters, whereas stage two are two to four, and then stage three are greater than four centimeters. T4 invades surrounding structures. You get upstage to N2 when contralateral nodes are involved or the node itself is greater than three centimeters. Um, so really the markers in terms of size that we need to remember are two centimeters and four centimeters. And then I think after that, you can kind of figure it out from there. So HPV patients have a better prognosis and are, I guess, more responsive to um, chemo radiation therapy. Like we were talking about TNM staging, um, N, in case we didn't get that, N is nodes, M is METs. And then, um, like we said, HPV kind of downgrades the staging system because the lethality is less. You see types 16 and 18 in oropharyngeal cancers. So that's kind of what we need to know. Of note, squamous cell carcinomas are most common in the maxillary region of the paranasal area. And then in terms of neck dissection, N0 and N1 of oral cavity, you just do a selective neck dissection, which is levels one through three. If you have clinically palpable METs, you want to do a modified neck dissection. Or if you have involvement of, of any nerves, veins, or muscles, usually you proceed with a radical neck dissection. And then kind of alluded to earlier, a selective neck dissection in low-grade oropharyngeal cancer stages one and two with negative nodes clinically. It generally speaking leads to decreased nodal recurrence. However, it does lead to increased post-op complications, obviously, because you're getting into the neck, but you do have higher rates of survival compared to therapeutic surgery only. Moving away kind of from neck dissection, if you have cortical invasion of a squamous cell in the mouth, that is an indication for a segmental mandibulectomy rather than a marginal mandibulectomy, which is usually only indicated for tumors that abut the mandible, but do not actually invade the mandible. In patients who have squamous cell of the lip, you want to proceed with excision and neck dissection if the nodes are involved, and generally speaking, a marginal mandibulectomy. 
and then a segmental if you actually do have clinical invasion of the squamous cell. And then in patients who have T4 lesions, you proceed with radiation. Interestingly, patients who have chronic exposure to nickel can have increased development of squamous cell carcinoma of the nasal sinuses. And then I'll talk a little bit about nodal drainage. So levels 1A and 1B lie within the submental region with the mandibular body being the superior border and the hyoid bone being the inferior border. Um, it drains the teeth, the gums, the lips, and the anterior hard palate. Level two, also known as the upper juggler group, drains the nasopharynx, the oropharynx, and the hypopharynx, as well as the parotid. Level three is kind of the middle third of the internal jugular chain. It also drains the nasopharynx, the oropharynx, the hypopharynx, but also the larynx. Level four is the lower jugular group with the cricoid cartilage as the superior border, the clavicle as the inferior border. It drains the hypopharynx, the larynx, and the cervical esophagus. Level five is located in the posterior triangle, and it drains the naso and oropharynx. And level six is the anterior central chain, which is between the hyoid and the sternum, and it drains the thyroids, the esophagus, and the larynx. So moving on to things slightly more relevant to us, reconstruction. Woo! <laughs> in the mandible, you need a free vascularized transfer for defects greater than five to six centimeters. The kind of workhorse flap for mandible reconstruction is the free fib, which is based on the perineal artery and vein. Advantages, long pedicle, good skin island, and it's able to accept dental implants into the cortical bone. However, you want to make sure you have a good thickness of cortical bone for your dental implants. You can also use a free iliac crest, which has more vertical height. It's based on the deep circumflex iliac artery. Another option for bony flap is the free scapular flap, which is based on the circumflex scapular artery or a branch of the subscapular artery. It can be har harvested as a chimeric flap, which Dr. Phillips here at Duke loves. You can add in pieces of the latissimus, the serratus, and then you can also add skin paddle in the scapular, periscapular regions. In terms of maxillary reconstruction, if you have a small defect or less than five centimeters, you can just do free bone grafting um, that's not vascularized. If you have soft tissue defect only, you can consider using a temporalis muscle flap. But if you have larger maxillary defects, a lot of the older test questions in particular will recommend using a free rectus flap. You could also consider an ALT just because of the donor site from the rectus. If you have a large bony defect of the maxilla, you can use a free fib. You can use iliac crest or scapula, so kind of the same bony choices. You can perform multiple osteotomies in your free fib if you have a large maxillary defect, which we have seen. Moving on to scalp reconstruction. In long-standing scalp wounds with necrosis, you want to obtain a biopsy first to rule out cancer or recurrence. You get a CT scan to make sure there's no deeper invasion, and then you proceed with resection and reconstruction. If the patient has a history of radiation, you want to consider vascularized tissue transfer, particularly full thickness defects. In non-radiated partial thickness defects, you could consider a skin graft. So if the defect is less than eight centimeters and you have no radiation, you could even really just consider a scalp rotational flap. And remember, you know, the radio form is a good option for scalp reconstruction, especially if the superficial temporal vessels are not good recipient vessels because you can reach all the way into the neck. Moving on to tongue reconstruction. Ideally, you want to use a thin, pliable flap with minimal morbidity. 
Muscle flaps are kind of like less desirable in these cases. Usually we use the radial forearm. You do need a split thickness skin graft for the donor site. You could also consider an MSAP or medial artery sterile perforator flap if you want to be fancy based on the medial sterile artery. If patients fail their swallow studies after tongue reconstruction, you need to make sure that they have enteral feeding via tube so the patient can actually heal. Super important to take care of these patients post-op as well as intra-op. And then you can usually begin radiation four to six weeks after glossectomy. In terms of the lower face and chin reconstruction, you can use submental flaps, which are based on the facial vessels. You can either do a myofascial version or myocutaneous version. The nice thing about a submental flap is it's actually adjacent to the defect and provides a similar skin color and texture. And then just moving on to facial nerve injuries, which can happen with resection of tumor or in trauma. The best outcomes are obtained by direct repair or cable nerve grafting. So if you have less than two centimeters of defect, you can try to just repair directly. And then five to seven centimeters, consider a tall guess cable graft, like the sterile nerve graft. If the nerve is resected very proximally to the intracranial portion, you can perform a cross-faced nerve graft at the time of tumor resection. And you can also supercharge or later do a masseteric nerve transfer to provide some kind of facial reanimation. And then finally, uh, pharyngeal reconstruction. Circumventional defects can be reconstructed um, with a tubularized ALT if you want to do it in a single stage to help kind of reestablish the alimentary tract. We've also been tested on the fact that tubularized ALTs provide good phonation postoperatively. The gastric pull-up flap is kind of a workhorse flap, especially for thoracic surgeons, but it has a high morbidity and generally speaking, kind of poor perfusion proximally, especially for larger pharyngeal defects. Finally, if you're concerned that the patient has an infection, sometimes these patients will come back postoperatively with a candidal infection or thrush. You want to prescribe topical nystatin or clomitrizole. Candida is the most ubiquitous and common flora, but it can kind of overtake things. And that's seen a lot of times in these cancer patients who are immunocompromised. Finally, we've been tested on hypocalcemia, which can cause perioral tingling and numbness, particularly in patients who've had thyroidectomies, um, if the parathyroids are inadvertently removed. Awesome. Thank you so much, Heather, for this review of head and neck tumors and parotid and for joining me today for the podcast. Hope you all enjoyed it and tune in for our next lecture. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of the topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.